We just wrapped up a sermon series through the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, so we went through a five-week series through those five solas, and I highly encourage you, if you're new to Sojourn or if you missed any of those sermons, I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. It was a great sermon series going through some fundamentals uh, of really our faith, of what it means to, to be a believer in God and to trust in God uh, who saves us by grace alone, through faith alone. We look to scripture alone. Uh, we live for God's glory alone, and we know that we're saved in Christ alone. Those are the five solas, the five onlys of the Reformation. So I encourage you to go listen to those. And today we're transitioning not just sermon series, but also church seasons. This is something you aren't familiar with. Um, we do follow, uh, at least loosely, uh, the church calendar, and this Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent. That's why we sang Christmas songs uh, for the first two songs this morning. Um, the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, and Advent's a season of preparation and anticipation for Christmas, the celebration of Christ's arrival into the world. And um, we celebrate it even as we look forward to Christ's second advent, his second return, and upon his return, the renewal of all things. The candle you see lit, um, if you weren't here at the beginning, then uh, come on time next week and you'll see the ceremony for the advent candles. It's a beautiful picture um, as that we just kind of link arms with churches around the world um, who light candles uh, in memory of the different weeks of advent. Uh, and I don't know what your Christmas tradition has been in the past, whether, you, uh, whether Advent for you is a rich time of remembrance of building your faith or whether it's something that you're reminded of by, you know, people's Christmas lights when you see them driving down the street or the jingles that come on TV commercials, whatever your background is with Advent. Um, I hope that this year, um, which is even different for us, we're building on previous years here at Sojourn. I hope that this year is just a beautiful time of remembrance of hope and peace and joy, uh, uh, perhaps reflection and, and even rededication. Uh, to what the, the purpose of the season is. And like Greg prayed uh, over us earlier uh, in the confession time, it's easy in this season to, to get distracted from what is central in Advent. There's a lot of great things that happen. We get to give gifts, receive gifts. We get to go to parties. We get to decorate things. These are all great things. Um, but it can be easy to be distracted from the reason for the season. Christ himself, God, who came as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament uh, expectation of the Messiah, the coming Christ who would come, God himself, to redeem his people. And so Advent, uh, we, we take the opportunity every year to go through uh, something in the Old Testament, to, to, to link arms with ancient Israel as they awaited the arrival of Jesus Christ, of, of, of their Redeemer. Uh, and so it's our prayer that this would be just a beautiful season for us as a church. And without, I guess, any further ado, let's look at our text for this morning in uh, our text, which came uh, as the beginning chapter of 1 Samuel, is a long text. Um, but the, so Samuel deserves a little bit of introduction. It might have been a little while since you read the books of Samuel. Um, this Advent, we're going to trace our way through First and Second Samuel. They tell the story of the rise of King David. Um, and we'll be reading these Old Testament books uh, really increasingly as we get closer to Christmas through the lens of Jesus' birth story. Uh, in other words, we'll be studying the rise of King David, which foreshadows the rise and the birth of King Jesus. We'll be exploring how the Bible invites us to see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all these Old Testament scriptures, and in particular, the story of Samuel and Saul and David. And we're going to continue our, our study of First and Second Samuel through the first part of 2018. Are we losing something over here? Pardon? Great. All right. Um, sorry about that. Uh, we're going to continue. We're going to continue our um, our study of First and Second Samuel through the first part of 2018. That's because not only did the rise of King David that's distracting for for more people too, isn't it? Do you want to do you want to hit the here? Tell you what, we'll do this for right now. Nope. Boom. Problem solved. All right. Sweet. So, First and Second Samuel, we're going to continue our, our series through First and Second Samuel into the new year because not only did the rise of King David uh, uh, give us a foretaste of the birth of Jesus, but the reign of King David gave us uh, really a, 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 a preparation for the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and so, we've titled our series, This is He, uh, which is not actually our title. It's a quote from First Samuel 16, uh, when Samuel's searching for a new king to anoint, he searches the land. And when he finds David, God says to Samuel, this is he. Then hundreds of years later, John the Baptist is searching for a new king in Israel, and Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And what does God say? 
this is he. This is my beloved son. This is my son, the beloved. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see all kinds of parallels like this. Uh, In these books of Samuel, originally one long book of Samuel that was divided later into two parts, uh, these books were written by an anonymous author sometime shortly after probably uh, the reign of King David. So this is written probably 900s, 800s BC, so almost 3,000 years ago. Uh, And they record a history of of some major shifts in the religious and political life of Israel. They're named after Samuel, who's the main character, through whom God takes Israel from a tribal people into an established kingdom. So, so Samuel anoints Israel's first kings, King Saul, and then upon Saul's failure, he anoints King David. Uh, and to give a little bit of historical context for just a moment, uh, let's look at what has brought Israel to this point. You might be familiar with the story of Joshua. Uh, when Moses died, uh, a man named Joshua was, was, was the guy God placed in charge over Israel. So this is just after the miraculous exodus from Egypt. Israel was in slavery. God used Moses to deliver them from slavery through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And Joshua is the one who, when Moses died, took them from the wilderness across the Jordan into the promised land. And Joshua is the one who, who divided the 12 tribes of Israel into 12 parts of the promised land. And he started fighting battles against the, the foreign nations. Uh, and, and when he died... He gave the commission to Israel, continue this work of of driving out these foreign nations from the land that God has given to you so that you don't mix with them um, uh, and so fall to their idols. But we see that uh, Israel didn't do that. And Israel's failure to carry out this commission that Joshua gives him at the end of his life results in the Lord chastising Israel for the following generations after Joshua. Uh, The book of Judges tells a story of foreign nations. And so to give you context, the reason I went to Joshua is because the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, First five books of the Bible written by Moses. Uh, Moses dies. The next book is Joshua, the next guy after Moses. Then we come to Judges, which tells the story. It's really a cyclical book. Judges is the most back and forth book, I think, in the Old Testament. Israel uh, enjoys a, a period of peace and prosperity in the promised land, and then they turn to their idols. They turn to rebellion. They get oppressed. God brings a foreign nation to oppress them. They cry out to God for help. He sends a deliverer, a judge, who rescues them out of their bondage. They enjoy a period of peace and prosperity. Then they go to rebellion, and then they get, you know, and so it's a cycle throughout Judges. Almost every chapter in the book of Judges is another one of these cycles. Um, and uh, so on and on this cycle went. End of book of Judges, which is the book right before Samuel. There's a, there's Ruth is in between Judges and Samuel. Joshua judges Ruth and Samuel, but Ruth is a story that takes place during the time of Judges. So uh, chronologically, Judges goes right into the book of Samuel, and Judges ends with this very disappointing sentence. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that brings us to the story of Samuel. So we're, we're still relatively near the beginning of the Bible, God's at work in the world and his people, ripening his people for the arrival, uh, for the fullness of time when he would send his son into the world. Um, But not yet. He still has work to do. Uh, And this story uh, that 1 Samuel tells is a story that takes place in cities and battlefields, palaces. It's it's a very grand story that tells about some pretty big big things that happen. Uh, But it begins, the author begins the book of Samuel with this barren, humble woman named Hannah. The whole chapter essentially, is about this woman named Hannah. So it's a book that's about to go on to, to, to discuss the most significant political shift in Israel's history, from tribe to kingdom, uh, to monarchy. Uh, but small things are not insignificant in the kingdom of God. Like Hannah, the nation of Israel was small and barren. They weren't bearing the fruit that God had intended them to bear, but God had a plan for them. And so let's dive in to 1 Samuel. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look through the story. It's a relatively long story, so we're going to spend a good bit of time doing that. And then we're going to look at a couple of points of application um, and be done. So let's look in. In the first two verses, starting in verse 1, we're introduced to the family that Samuel is born into. And in particular, we're introduced to Samuel's mother, Hannah. So this certain man that the story begins with is Samuel's father, Elkanah, uh, who had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. This isn't a royal family. Um, it's, it's just an ordinary Israelite family that lived in the countryside. Uh, Ramathim Sophim is also referred to in verse 19 later as just simply Ramah. Uh, and it's an obscure small town that's actually not too far from the town of Bethlehem. So this is a lot, uh, if you know that's where Jesus was born. And so there's a lot that goes on in this little area, even a thousand years leading up to Jesus. 
Uh, and since Hannah is listed first in this story, she was probably Elkanah's first wife. And likely, the, the reason that Elkanah took Peninnah as a second wife was the reason given at the end of verse 2, Hannah had no children. Uh, there were certainly other historical details that the author could have included here, like how many children Peninnah had and what their names were and other things about the family. But the author's not concerned about that. We see that in these first two verses, uh, the author focuses our eyes on Hannah and the fact that she couldn't have children. And then verses three through eight tell us more. Every year, the family would go up to what was probably a yearly gathering for all the family members, including women and children, to participate in the worship of Israel at the tabernacle, uh, the tent of meeting. And this is before David, before Solomon, before the temple was built in Jerusalem. And so the tent of the meeting uh, was where Joshua put it when he was dividing the tribes of Israel uh, back in Joshua 18, I believe. Uh, And so it was about 20 miles north of Jerusalem in a little place called Shiloh. Uh, and so the family goes up to Shiloh every year, and this trip was, was an act of devotion for Elkanah and his family. It's in keeping with God's commandment to go to the presence of the Lord, to worship, to sacrifice, and to eat from Deuteronomy 12. Uh, and the family would go up every year. So we see Elkanah is a man who lived his whole life uh, in submission to the law of God that God gives in the Torah. And he is a strong family leader. He leads his family in the worship of God likewise, in keeping with the teaching of the law. Um, And again, here though, uh, the focus is not on Elkanah. The author focuses upon explaining Hannah's experience in this worship trip. So when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his family so they could eat. Um, But he would give a double portion to Hannah, an honored portion to Hannah, says his beloved wife. Hannah's experience in this process of distribution of food, though, wasn't one of feeling honored. It was one of pain uh, and shame. Because even though her husband loved her and gave her a double portion, uh, as we read, it was only a portion for her, whereas Peninnah, uh, the wife who did have children, received portions for her and for each of her children. And so this was a time of painful remembrance that, that Hannah was barren, that the Lord had closed her womb, as it says. And we'll come back to that wording a little later on. It was worse than simply self-reflective remembrance, though, of the fact that she was barren, because Peninnah, her rival, would grievously provoke her. She would pick on her. She would bully Hannah because she was barren. And if you look at that word in verse 6, rival, we see uh, it's important to know that polygamy wasn't excluded as a normal practice within this culture. Uh, Childbearing, and in particular providing an heir for your husband, was seen as the primary role of a wife in the ancient Near East. Um, and likely, since Hannah could not have children, that was the reason that Elkanah took Peninnah as a second wife. And there's precedent, even faithful men, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and J- Jacob, to name three minor ones, uh, did this. But it's clear here that this is not a passage endorsing polygamy. The word rival here shows that polygamous marriages were not peaceful arrangements. Right? They, they, they came about because of the, the necessity of the weakness of human flesh Uh, And so out of weak necessity, they were entertained even by faithful men, but they were not God's design for marriage and for the peace, right? The shalom that is to exist within the covenant of marriage. As God had said in Genesis 2, he created man and woman for one another. He created woman as to be man's helper, not one of man's helpers. The two, not the as many as you want, the two shall become one flesh. That's God's design for marriage. But yes, Peninnah, Hannah's rival would provoke her, and she would do this year after year. You can imagine how it would go. You know, picture the scene. They come, they're, they're getting their, their, their portions, and Hannah gets her portion, and Peninnah says, okay, how many? I got one, two, three, four. Uh, Elkanah, I need six portions, please. How many kids she had. Uh, and, you know, says that with Hannah standing right there. I need six portions, please. Okay, here's your portion. Here's your portion. You know, mommy, why, doesn't, why does Hannah only get one portion? You know, that's a great question. It's because she doesn't have any children. Well, why, doesn't she want children? Oh, I'm sure she wants children, but I guess God just doesn't want to give her children. You know, it's so on and on, this, this just sort of barrage um, uh, against Hannah and this remembrance. Um, year after year, what was supposed to be a celebration of worship and, 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 and faithfulness was instead just a reminder of her shame and of her failure to be able to provide a child for her husband. She was the beloved wife of Elkanah, yes, but she couldn't bear children for him. And as a result, she wouldn't eat. She wouldn't eat her portion. And Elkanah tried to comfort her, verse 8, but it didn't work. Moving on in verses 9, 9 through 18, we see Hannah's response to this plight. What does Hannah do because of all of this? 
Um, well, one year, this story jumps into to one of these years, uh, the family had eaten, and after they, eat, after they ate, Hannah rose, and she was deeply depressed, and she was weeping bitterly. This wasn't inward sorrow, but outward. She was undone by her sorrow. She was in anguish, and she was crying out. And what did she do with this sorrow? She took it to the Lord. She, she went before the Lord. She stood up in the temple. They were eating in the, in the, in the courts of the temple, of the tent of meeting, um, before the temple was constructed, but we'll call it a temple. Um, she was eating, she stood up and she made God a vow. She said, look at me, God. Look at me, God. Remember your servant. If you will have regard for me and give me a son, then I will give him to you all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. So she makes this vow to God. That reference, no razor shall touch his head, is, is, is a promise to set Samuel apart as a Nazarite. It's a term you might be familiar with. You know the story of Samson, Samson and Delilah. Uh, when he cut his hair, he lost his strength. Anyway, a Nazarite is just a, a term that refers to a life of total devotion to the Lord uh, in a couple of special ways. You abstain from alcohol, you abstain from haircuts, um, and a number of other things. And as Eugene Peterson put it, this was no offhand or whimsical offering for Hannah. Right here, Hannah uh, is promising that any child the Lord might give her will be set apart for the Lord for the Lord's work all the days of his life. It would mean that she would set him apart and she would give him to the tutelage of the temple. She wouldn't raise him for his entire childhood. She would give him away for the service of the Lord. So Hannah, in the midst of her desperation, she cries out emphatically to God, God, just look at me. Have regard for me. Don't you see me? Look at my affliction and remember me. God, and I think this scene is instructive for us. Right? It's, it's a beautiful demonstration um, of heartfelt pleading and devotion to the Lord. Right? We don't need to clean up ourselves when we come to God with requests. <laughs> right? We don't need to, we don't need to, to get the, let the emotion wear itself out before we go to God in prayer. We get to pour our hearts out with honesty, with raw reality, just as they are. God allows us to be unkempt in our distress before him. He can handle your tears. He can handle your anguish. He can handle your shouts, and he will answer because he's a God who loves his children. How do we know Hannah was so emphatic? As Hannah's praying in the sanctuary, Eli, the one who's in charge of the tent of meeting, he's the judge who's, who's in charge of, of Israel's religious worship at this point. Eli saw her in deep distress. Her lips were moving though, but silent. And so she's in deep distress. So she's crying out uh, to the Lord, probably beating her chest. That was a sign of contrition and, and desperation in the Old Testament. But when she was praying this vow to the Lord, she was moving her lips. So she wasn't, she wasn't saying those, those words out loud. And so Eli sees it and took her to be a drunk woman. She wasn't, so we, we know that in her distress, again, to, to belabor the point, she wasn't sitting there just you know, silently moving her lips. She was moving around, emphatically moving her lips. But when Eli rebukes her, she responds to him, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman as a daughter of Belial, a pagan worshiper. Do not regard your servant as a pagan worshiper for all, all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So she tells him, no, my Lord. Eli's the leader in the tent of the Lord. So he's not out of place to be examining and judging his congregants. That was his role as a judge. And Hannah responds to him with respect. She says, no, my Lord, but I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out myself before God, speaking out of my great anxiety, my exasperation. And when Eli hears this, he simply grants her, uh, uh, grants her innocence. He says, go in peace. And then he gives her, he doesn't just say that, he says, he gives her a parting benediction. He says, and the God of Israel, grant your petition that you've made to him. So he, he hears her explanation and says, you know what, may the God of Israel give you what you ask. And he grant your petition. And in this moment, something changes for Hannah. Look at the end of verse 18. After she asks for favor in Eli's eyes, which is another statement of respect to Eli, it says that Hannah went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. In Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the face was a, was, was, was a referent for all that was going on within you. So the, the anger of the Lord is described as the nose of the Lord, the red-hot nose of the Lord. So, so for for the, the author to describe her face as no longer being sad. This isn't what we think, you know, plaster a smile on your face, be like, eh, I'm fine, you know, I prayed. No, this was a real honest, she was no longer sad. She went back and ate with joy and with hope because of what happened. And listen, or I guess, you know, as, as one commentator put it, 
Hannah's departure from the sanctuary area was an example of faith triumphant. Though she had approached the Lord in the depths of despondency, she left the sanctuary elevated and transformed. And his spiritual victory, won through the labor of tearful prayers, enabled her to eat the festival meal in peace and hope. So Hannah didn't leave this prayer the same as she went in to this prayer. And I don't know, I don't know what your expectations, your, your expectations are when you pray. Um, but when God tells us to cast our burdens on him in Psalm 55, uh, cast your anxieties on him, First uh, Peter 5, it, it sure conjures up the image of something actually changing. Right, picture carrying something very heavy and giving it to someone else to carry or, or loading it onto a pack animal of, or putting it in a cart. Walking becomes easier. Right? Something changes. In moments of despair, is this not the, author that God, the offer that God gives us? The story with Hannah here sure makes it sound like this is actually a real burden lifting that is taking place because this is before the prayer is even answered. Right? Before Hannah knows anything that's gonna happen in the future. There, nothing external looks to have changed because nothing external has changed. All she has done is prayed and received a word of blessing. But we see that throughout the Bible, prayer, blessing, belief are seen as as effectual as actual events that can happen to you externally. Entering into prayer doesn't leave you the same as, when you, as the person you were before. Hannah's encouraged, walking away from her time with God, refreshed, at peace. She goes back to eat her portion and to take this a step further, there's a difference, I think, a key difference between saying something in your, or excuse me, between knowing something in your mind and saying it to God in prayer. There's a difference between saying out loud to others, yes, I know that God is in control and that he's got me, and looking to God and asking him, Lord, I trust you, you got me? There's a big difference in those two things. Going before the Lord and saying, Lord, this is awful. Are you with me? Are you remembering me, Lord? Are you regarding me, your servant? Please come and answer me in my distress. Jesus makes this clear. The book of James, the apostle James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus says, knock and the door will be opened. He doesn't say, think about the door that's there. If you, you know, he says, go and knock on it. And then the door will be opened to you. Or if you open a credit card, you have a $2,000 credit limit or a $15,000 credit limit, whoever, whatever, you know, if you have a credit limit, do you just walk around thinking, oh, I've got all this credit in my pocket and you just never use it? No, you, you go and you use it. <laughs> it's been made available to you for your use. If you're in a dating relationship, if you're married, do you go around just knowing in your mind how you feel about the other person, but you never tell them? Maybe you'll tell some people how you feel about this person, but you never tell them. <laughs> right, do you think it might be a good idea to sometimes, maybe every day, look at person right in the eyes and say, tell them how you feel, tell them I, I, I like you a lot. I love you a lot. I care about you. I want the best for you. I can't wait to see you when I get home. Right, I will ne never get tired of my bride telling me that she loves me. Every time I get in bed um, after her and she's already half asleep, which doesn't usually, well, I guess it's happening more now that she's been pregnant. But um, uh, usually she's, you know, she's at least half asleep and she usually though makes a point of, of waking up enough to, to lean over and tell me, I love you, my dear. What do I say? Oh, I already know that. Why are you telling me that? <laughs> no, I love hearing that. And so I say, no, I love you too. Thanks for loving me so well, my dear. And so I don't know what uh, nicknames you have for each other. Love, dear, honey, hot stuff, sugar, snookums, whatever you call each other. I hope, I think you know what I'm talking about. The same, I think, goes with God. I hope that you tell God how you feel about him. Right? I hope you don't just tell other people how you feel about God. I hope you don't just think to yourself quietly how you feel about God. I hope that you go before him. Those things are important. It's important to tell other people how you feel about God. I love, it. it's uniquely uplifting when I hear Lindsay telling other people how she feels about me. It's a beautiful thing. God loves hearing us talk about him to other people. He wants us to do that. But I also love it and need Lindsay to tell me that she loves me. God invites us to look right at him and tell him how we feel There's, because of what we're taught about prayer in the Bible, there's things, the, the truth is, there are things that we don't have yet simply because we haven't asked for them. That's how the logic goes. James says that. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. He's talking about wisdom specifically. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God and it shall be given to you. But that goes, you know, we, the, the logic is that you don't have some things because you just haven't asked God for them yet. 
go ask God and watch as he does his work? The answer might be no. He might not open your womb. He might not give you that job that you lost, but he might. Regardless of the outcome of the prayers, you will not leave that prayer the same as when you went into it because God is good, God loves you, and he wants to change you and transform you as he grows you in faith, strengthens you in faith as you walk in his ways. Moving on, we see that this time, uh, back to the story of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel of Hannah, uh, we see that this time God grants Hannah's request in in relatively short order this year. Uh, The next morning they awake early, they return home to Ramah, and when Elkanah knew his wife, uh, what a, this is a beautiful way to refer to marital intimacy, just to know one another. We'll save that word study for another day. Um, but it says, you know, El- Elkanah knew his wife, and it says, verse 19, that the Lord remembered her. What was Hannah's prayer? Verse 11, Lord, remember your servant. And what does God do? He remembers her. Verse 20, in due time, likely about nine months, she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel. And the word Samuel, Josiah and Meryl, or Justin and Meryl, Josiah is your son, your other son. Justin and Meryl have a son named Samuel, so they probably know this already. But the name Samuel is rich in meaning in a way that doesn't translate into English very well. Um, it literally means Shamel, name of God. So, so na- it's, it's named of God or one over whom the name of God has been spoken. So that's what the name Samuel means. Uh, but it's also one that sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for ask, sha'al. Right, Hebrew plays on words are quite common. Uh, and here, this one, this, this one, this child over whom the name of God has been spoken, Samuel, is one about whom Hannah said, verse 28, I have asked sha'al for him from the Lord. It's beautiful. Again, a word study, probably for another day. So we see that even as God remembers Hannah, Even as God remembers Hannah, Hannah remembers her vow to dedicate her son to the Lord. Even his name is a reflection of her steadfastness, or or rather, a reflection of her trust in God's steadfastness to her. Verses 21 through 28, moving on, bring chapter 1 to a close by showing Hannah's fulfillment of her vow to God in dedicating Samuel to God's service. So when the family family goes up the following year, Hannah decides to stay behind. She tells her husband, verse 22, as soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him up so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So Samuel here is less than a year old at this point. If you do the math, he's probably less than three months, 12 minus nine, we give three months. If we do, so, so in weaning, right, weaning a child is a process, uh, the process of transferring from mother's milk to other food uh, for, for nourishment is a process that normally took three, sometimes even five years to complete in the ancient Near East. And fun fact, in many different parts of the world today even, three to five years is a normal time for weaning. That's a free fact. So Hannah, uh, Hannah tells her husband that she'll remain at home and care for her son until he's weaned, at which point she'll come and dedicate him to the Lord. And the way that this sentence is worded, speaking of Samuel appearing in the presence of the Lord and then him dwelling in the presence of the Lord forever, this, is a, this tells of how big of a deal this commitment is. So appearing in the presence of the Lord, this is, not, this, is, this is speaking of real things, right? The presence of the Lord is at Shiloh. It's in the tent of meeting. Um, and dwelling there forever is not just a spiritual statement, like saying, you know, I wish I could be there in person, but I'll be with you in spirit, whatever that means. This is a real commitment. Hannah is saying, I'm gonna give him and he will dwell there forever. He will dwell there for the rest of his days. Um, so as soon as he's weaned, right? Not, hey, I'm gonna let him, go to college, and then maybe I'll let him out of my house at 25. It's when he's probably three years old. She'll leave him, take him with her family, dedicate him, and leave him under the tutelage of Eli and his sons. So Hannah's intent is to keep her word fully. It's a big deal. As soon as the child's weaned, I'm going to bring him so that he can appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah's affirmation of his wife in verse 23 is worth mentioning for just a moment. According to the Old Testament law, a husband could nullify the vow of his wife. But here, Elkanah affirms it. Right, when Elkanah, uh, uh, so, so how, how it goes, the Old Testament says that if a husband fit, learns of a vow that his wife has made and he deems it that, that, that should probably have a vow that she shouldn't have made, then he can go and nullify it and there'd be no consequence. That's according to the Old Testament law. But here, Elkanah doesn't do that. He affirms it. When he says, only may the Lord establish his word, he's acknowledging both the weight of Hannah's decision. I mean, this, is, this, this has to do with God's word. This isn't just, maybe I'm gonna go here, maybe I'm gonna go there. 
This, this is an acknowledgement of the weight of the commitment Hannah's made, and it's also a, a strong affirmation. He says, do what seems best to you, to his wife. And let me pause here. There's, there's a lot that could be said uh, at this point. When Tallulah, uh, our 22-month-old, was born, we, we faced the question of how and when to bring her back to church with us. This is just one way of looking at uh, of this. And there's a lot that could be said about this, lots of other things. Let me say this. Here in this passage, I think that, um, that we're given some good principles surrounding parenting. Um, we see mutual respect between Hannah and Elkanah, who discussed together what they should do with their son when it came to worship. Um, and when it came to this conversation, they decided together. Are the words told here in 1 Samuel the entire extent of their conversation? We don't know. Probably not given that they're married, and this is a huge decision. But this gives the general gist of the conversation. Hannah tells her husband, I'm not going to go with you this year. And her husband says, okay, do what seems right to you. That's the general gist of how the conversation went. So does Hannah making a decision here violate her role as a wife under the headship of her husband? No. Could Elkanah have pushed back if he thought that it was the wrong decision? Probably. And if actually knowing what we know about Elkanah from this passage, he, he, he almost certainly would have done that but he doesn't. He respects her wish and he affirms her in her decision as a mother. Does this mean that fathers who have babies should see this as a command to leave your wife at home with the kid and come to, the church, come to church every week? No, that's not this command. Is it okay to leave your wife at home with the kid or wives, wives to leave your husband at home with the kids to come worship on your own? Absolutely. The point here is that it's important to see that there weren't prescribed rules about this, nor should we write any prescribed rules about this, like they did, we should talk about important things like this. Pushing one another, uh, pushing on one another when necessary, yes, but mutually, uh, but making mutually respectful decisions together and affirming one another. And around all of this, there should be grace. Is, is gathering for worship important today even? Yes, it is. Is making the right decision for your family important? Yes, it is. Are those two things at odds? They should never be at odds with one another. There's grace all around us. When Lindsay and I were making this, these decisions, I can't remember exactly how it went. I think the second or third week of Tulula's life, we felt like awesome parents. We brought her one time, and then, I can't remember what it was. Second or third week, and then the second or third week of no sleep hit, and then it was like six weeks, maybe seven weeks before we made another visit, and then it was a long time before we were able to establish a regular rhythm, and that was us. Uh, we had friends who, you know, week one were there, and they were there for good, and we had friends who, for months, um, weren't able to come together with their child to send a gathering, and that's fine. Every parent is different. Every child is different. Every situation is different, and God works differently through families. Um, showing grace to families through communities like this, and, you know, when Lindsay and I were making this, these decisions and walking through this season with Tallulah, which we're getting ready to do again here, hopefully at least two weeks from now, um, people checked on us, right? People asked if we would be back, you know, when we would be back, and we were thankful to know that we were missed. Sometimes we felt pressure uh, that we needed not feel, and we often talked about it together. Uh, we didn't do it perfectly by any means, nor have any of you. But there was grace all around. It was great to be in a church family. We were at Sojourn Heights at the time. Great to be in a church family who, could learn, who we could learn from, who we could be challenged by, who we could pursue the Lord together with, even as having a kid changed a lot of what it meant to interact with our neighborhood parish and with our church. So there's grace all around. That's a little bit of a tangent but I thought that was important to say that here we see um, this mutually respectful, um, gracious situation between Elkanah and his wife as they decide together what to do uh, with their family and what's best for their family. Anyway, back to 1 Samuel, verse 23. So Hannah remains, so they make this decision. Hannah remains, nurses her son until she weans him. And then uh, verse 24, I'll read to the end of the chapter. And when she had weaned him, Hannah took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, they brought the child to Eli, and she said, oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, speaking to Eli, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Uh, speaking of Samuel, Samuel worshiped the Lord there. After Samuel is weaned, we see, um, again, this is probably around three years later, Hannah takes up this significant sacrificial offering 
uh, by most accounts, this is about triple the average household offering for dedicating a child, um, or even in the annual pilgrimage to, to Shiloh to, to, to worship, to, to sacrifice, to pray. Um, and so this is just an exuberant showing of generosity uh, in, in response to God's favor for them, and they bring Samuel to dedicate him. And, and when Hannah gets to Eli, she's exuberant. She's, she's got great joy in the Lord. She swears to Eli. She says, as you live, verse 26. This is the same as saying, as the Lord lives, or today's equivalent would be, I swear to God. Right? This is a, a very strong way of making a statement. She's swearing to him because she's about to testify to a miracle of God. Uh, remember, Eli, when I was here in your presence, Praying to the Lord, you thought I was drunk. Well, then I was praying for a child, and this is the answer to that prayer. God granted my petition that you told me. Remember, that's, she uses the words that Eli used when he blessed Hannah. Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Hannah uses those same words and says, see, this is that child. God is faithful. Hannah's saying, look, he, you know, I prayed and God answered, and here I am responding to God's faithfulness with faithfulness on my own part. Verse 28, therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. What does that mean, lent to the Lord? When you think about it, what do you do when you lend something to someone else? You give it to them for their use, right, for their purposes. Hannah's not tight-fisted with this gift that she received from God, but she holds him up with an open hand, knowing that Samuel's not hers. He came from above, and she dedicates him right back to the Lord. And again, parents, while not every parent is necessarily the parent of a child who's gonna change history like geopolitical history in the Middle East in the way that Samuel did. Uh, we, we do share some common ground with Samuel's parents. Right, as Dale, uh, there, there's one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, put it this way. He said, any parents who are living in covenant with the Lord should solemnly and passionately desire that each child be made over to God. Right, his gifts should be given back to him. To illustrate, here's how he describes his childhood. He said, when I was a child, there were times, the very few, when my father was away. That meant my mother would lead family worship in the evening, and I always half dreaded that because after the scripture was read and we were on our knees, mom would pray for each of us five boys by name, specifically and in detail, beginning with the oldest down to the caboose, me. I say I half dreaded this because it was difficult to hear the earnest desires of a mother's soul without tears coming to my eyes. And after prayer, they were always fresh because I was the last one prayed for. Naturally, it was not macho for an eight, 10, or 12-year-old lad to shed tears. But it was tough to be tough. Here was a Christian mother on the basis of what she knew and didn't know, making over her sons to the Lord. They were hers, but it was more important that they be his, and for that she prayed. Just a beautiful picture of faithfulness in a covenant family. Um, I had great parents. I had parents who loved me very much, but they're not believers. They weren't Christian. I don't have any memories like this of being prayed for that I would be set apart to the Lord. I don't know what your upbringing was, what, what kind of relationship you had with your parents or how your parents uh, are with the Lord. But I'll say this, I, I want my daughters, daughters, there's about to be two of them, uh, I want my daughters um, to look back and have these memories, should the Lord grant that they have long lives before Christ's return, right? I want them to be able to look back and remember times when daddy prayed for them, that they would be set apart to the Lord, times when mommy prayed for them, that they would be set apart to the Lord. The story ends with a simple, beautiful picture of Samuel, this dedicated boy before the Lord, worshiping in the temple. Beautiful opening with the family's dedication and worship closing with Samuel's worship in response to God's faithfulness. So that's the passage. Right? That's, the, that's the narrative. That's the story that First Samuel tells. And there's a lot of observations that can be made <laughs> in addition to what I've observed. It's a long passage, a lot in there uh, that we haven't hit and that we won't. Um, but what I want to do in the, the few minutes that we have left this morning, um, if you'll tolerate me for it, I want to zoom out a little bit and look at the details of this story from the perspective of the whole Bible. Uh, and and the, the question I have is this. Why would the book of Samuel start here? Right, why, you know, this is a book about a huge shift in Israel from, from tribal society to monarchy through some pretty big characters, right? We, we have Samuel, we have Saul, we have David, we have the priests. I mean, there's a lot going on in these books. Why begin with this story detailing such humble circumstances for a whole chapter? Why not just say, Hannah, the wife of Elkanah was barren. Uh, her, wife, her, her, her rival's provocation made her really sad, so she prayed, and boom, God gave her a child, enter Samuel. 
And then we skip to chapter three, uh, where Samuel gets called by God to become a prophet and he goes out to start his ministry. Why why begin this way? Well, I think that that God is making a few things clear for us through his word. And I want to bring up just three of those things. First, regardless of what's going on in our lives, regardless of what's going right or wrong in our eyes, God is in control and he will bring about his purposes. Look at verse six. Verse six says, her her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah's closed womb wasn't an accident of nature. It was the deliberate will of God. The author of Samuel gives God credit for this reality. Then at verse 19, what happens when Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife? What changed the situation with Hannah's womb? The Lord remembered her. All right, so the transition from barrenness to fruitfulness was by God's, by God's design, by God's authority. How many years had Hannah prayed for this? We don't know, probably a lot, right? Uh, we don't know, like I said, how many children Peninnah had. We know that she had multiple children. They, they were all weaned and they were all making the trip to the temple. So there's probably year after year after year that this has been happening, that Hannah has been praying this prayer. She probably prayed this prayer a lot. So the due time, when it says in due time she conceived in verse 20, that's probably a rich statement. Could be a reference to the fact that Hannah had prayed year after year and that this was the year in due time, in God's timing, that God decided that it was right in accordance with his plan to give her what she asked for. And it's all by God's will. In the words of one commentator, God sometimes engineers social tragedies, yet he carries them out, and he quotes John 9, that the work of God might be displayed. Right? As humans, tragedies in our lives, I'm convinced, can only properly, possibly be evaluated in hindsight. Only after we've been able to see the outcome of how God used situations in our lives can we even begin to attempt to understand with any sobriety uh, the purposes that God might have had in them. And even then, we often can't. If you want a biblical example, look at the story of Job. There's no answers given at the end of that story for what God's purposes were in that. Hannah in this story did not pray to God saying, Lord, I know that you're, gonna use, you're doing this for my good and it's gonna ultimately bring you glory. Wouldn't have been wrong for her to pray that. We can pray that, we get to pray that, but that's not how Hannah prays. She doesn't say, I know that you're ripening this whole situation with me, you know, being barren into a development of just this epic shifting event in Israel's history. I know that you're doing this, God. That's not what she does. She had no way of knowing that. She had no way of knowing what God was doing. She just called out to God that he might remember his servant, and she trusted in God with the outcome because God is totally in control. God did this with Hannah, turned her from being barren to being fruitful. He did this with Israel, turned Israel from being barren to, 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 to being fruitful in giving them kings, which ultimately pointed to Christ. God does this all the time. Um, last night, I flew into town, flew back into town late. I was in Atlanta for my sister's graduation from her doctoral program in psychology, Uh, in Atlanta, and it was a great ceremony. There were two ceremonies. The graduation speaker uh, at the little hooding ceremony that took place before the big ceremony um, said something that's still ringing in my mind and that's actually fitting here. Um, Her main word of encouragement to these graduates was this. She said, bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. If you don't find yourself exactly where you thought you would be, then at least keep showing up, she said keep digging in. You'll never know what doors will open for you. Uh, Don't give up. Bloom where you're planted. And that sounds actually a whole lot like something that uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York, former pastor in New York, uh, said all the time. He he often says, be who you are, where you are for the glory of God. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know why you got there. You might not know why you got there, but be who you are, where you are for the glory of God. And I think this picture is beautiful. I think it's even a biblical one. She didn't sound like a Christian, but she was using biblical wisdom. Psalm 1, a righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in due season. And think about that. How much volition, right? How much control does an acorn have when it falls from the tree? How much control does, you know, you you ever watch a dandelion get blown off in the wind? How much control do those little seeds have where they land? None. Absolutely none. How much control do we have over where we're born? when we're born, into which families we're born, what kind of opportunities we have, what kind of gifts we have. We have no control over those things. What we do have control over, what we have been entrusted with is the work of cultivation, cultivating what God's given us. 
right now, right where we are. If God wants to move us, he will. If, he want, if we want him to move us, he invites us to ask. And through that dialogue and relationship, God builds our trust, grows us in faith and humility, and trust in him as we go through our lives. So how often do you try to grab control over situations in your lives? How often do you find yourself giving God the roadmap for your future life, whether in prayers or in your thought processes, your 10-year plans? The invitation here is to, is to stop, not stop planning and being wise, but to stop doing it yourself. God is in control. God is for you. He will bring to completion the work he started in you. And he invites you to trust him. Let your prayers be like Hannah's. Please, Lord, remember me. Or like Jesus's, not my will, but yours be done. Those two examples, Hannah's prayer was granted. Jesus was not. God grants and doesn't grant as he pleases, as he wishes for his purposes, and he is in control. Both of those cases, though, we see ultimate trust in the Lord, who's sovereign over all things. The second and third are more brief than that. The second thing that, that I want to pull out from this is that God is after a humble heart. Right? Hannah didn't lash out at Peninnah. She could have. Right? Hannah was the privileged wife. She was the beloved wife of Elkanah, and so she could have used her privilege. She could have used any, any way to, to lash back at Peninnah. Even if she didn't have a privilege status, she, she could have re- reacted with anger, but she didn't. She takes her sorrow before God. She cedes the power and authority over her life to the living God. The topic of the heart comes up frequently in the Old Testament. The word heart comes up three times in these opening chapters uh, in this story about Hannah. Verse 8, Elkanah asks, why is your heart sad? Verse 13, Hannah was speaking in her heart. The song of praise that she prays in, in, in chapter 2 begins, my heart exults in the Lord. These opening chapters emphasize the condition of the heart in the experience of faith, in the experience of life. Right, it begins here with the story of Hannah, and we see the topic coming up throughout the story of First and Second Samuel. God gives Saul another heart. Uh, God's rebuke for Saul is predicated upon the fact that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and Saul has failed. In Samuel 1.16, when he's introducing David, Samuel says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is the case throughout the Bible. New Testament picks right up. Acts 2, when Peter preaches at Pentecost, it says that his hearers were cut to the heart. It goes on, Acts 15, God who knows the heart bears witness to his people. 2 Corinthians 4, God who let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 6, he has sent the spirit of his son, where? Into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. On and on it goes. You might be familiar with the parable of the tax collector and the sinner that Jesus tells. Um, it's, uh, to paraphrase, uh, Jesus tells a story, and it, and it says he's telling the story to people who thought they had it all together. And he tells a story of this Pharisee who walks into the temple and, and sees a tax collector and says, God, thank you that you have made me not like this man. I give a tenth of everything that you give me. I do all these great things for you. Aren't I great? Amen. No petition, no question. The Pharisee who follows the laws to a T makes no petition of God. But then this tax collector He's not even looking, he's standing off on the side. He's beating his chest in contrition, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus' point is simple. He says, he says, I tell you, the tax collector, he is the one who went home justified. For the one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a powerful story, a powerful picture of what I think the author of Samuel is getting at right here. God is after a humble heart. Jesus starts his famous sermon on the mount with the statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The third thing I think that Paul, or that Paul, wow, that's, that the author of Samuel gives us is this. Uh, God uses what is weak in the world to bring about his purposes. God didn't go to the strong. God didn't go to the royal lines. He went to the poor in spirit, the humble. Hannah was weak. She was childless in a culture in which childbearing was paramount. She was in a polygamous marriage in which she was mocked. Her own actions are misunderstood by the, the, the judge, the one who should understand true faithful prayer. She's misunderstood. We see in this story that everyday faithfulness by ordinary people, uh, through the weakness of those ordinary people, can, by God's grace, change history forever. Look into Christmas. This story has striking parallels, if you think about it, with the story of Jesus. In response to prayer in Luke 1.13, childless Elizabeth is promised and receives a child named John the Baptist, who, like Samuel before him, heralds the coming of God's king. 
Even the birth of that king, Jesus, involves the humble obedience of yet another faithful woman, Mary. The seemingly uneventful chapter sets the stage for the whole book of Samuel. God hears the pleas of the weak and chooses the weak in the world to overcome it. Right, and everything in the story of Samuel, the rest of the Old Testament, sets the stage, points forward to the day when God would display the ultimate show of humility and weakness before the whole world. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In order to conquer the sin of the world, to accomplish the redemption of God's people. The wickedness that is within the world, the sin of the world needed to be done away with. And God's plan was not to come and strong arm his way through it. His plan was to come in a humble estate, Jesus Christ, to minister in weakness and submission, ultimately giving his life for our sins so that we would not receive the penalty for our sin, but instead the reward for his righteousness. God loved us. He gave himself for us. And it's, it's just in a, this incredibly simple humble story from 1 Samuel 1 about barren Hannah crying out to God is how God was setting the stage for the arrival of his own son into the world. If you're looking to your strength, your accomplishments, your understanding, your way of, your, your ability to, to pull things together, then stop. It's exhausting and it's not gonna work. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why is all of this important? God uses the weak to bring about his purposes. He invites us to come to him in poverty of spirit, not in strength. And watch as he brings to life his power, which works powerfully within us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. Um, thank you for the Bible, this this. Um, this book in which the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments tell the most glorious story that's ever been told. God, I, I pray that you would give us grace this morning, that you would give us faith to believe the truth of this story and to behold the wondrous mystery of who Christ is and who we are because of what he's done. Help us, Lord, to hear your words through 1 Samuel 1, inviting us to trust you. You were ripening time through this particular family at this particular time in weakness. And as, as, we, as we see this story unfold throughout the course of this series, I pray that you would grip our hearts with, with anticipation um, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas morning, the arrival of Christ into the world. Um, thank you for this time together. Thank you for each other. Um, and thank you. Lord, for loving us the way that you do. Um, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.